Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for getting up so early. I'm looking so bright-eyed. Um, I'm only going to speak for a few minutes and then really hope to have a conversation with you, but want to say thanks as well to the Catherine Reynolds Foundation for inviting me here today. I'm actually with my colleague, Catherine Casey, who um, is a fellow, um, a Reynolds fellow, and so brings a lot of good cheer to the Acumen Fund. Um, I actually started my career in international banking uh, with Chase down mostly in Latin America during the, the banking crisis of the early 1980s. And it was really there that I started um, seeing both the power of banking and investing, and I really loved being a banker, but also the fact that the people that I was really intrigued by who were living in the favelas, who were doing so much of the work, had no access to the banks, um, couldn't even walk through the banking doors. And so um, as a 25-year-old decided I was going to save the world, move to Africa, um, and I found myself in Kigali, Rwanda, where I started a microfinance bank with uh, six Rwandan women. And uh, it was amazing to see that we could actually create an institution that provided banking services for the first time in history to the poor in that country. So you can imagine in 1994, during the Rwandan genocide, what it felt like not to know what had happened to the institutions, what had happened to the women. Um, and so I uh, went back two years after the genocide and discovered that the women with whom I had started this bank ended up playing every conceivable role of the genocide, from uh, being killed in the first hour to watching their families being killed to uh, being bystanders to being major perpetrators. Agnes, um, who was our first executive director, was convicted last May as being one of the main planners of the genocide. And so um, when I started thinking about the world, the human journey, and why we didn't seem to be doing the kind of job we needed to do when it came to solving problems of poverty and really building an inclusive economy. I finally, in 2001, um, as Spence said, I decided that there had to be a better way and started the Acumen Fund, really based on three lessons that had um, been drummed into me over the, the 20 years prior in banking, in philanthropy, um, certainly in Rwanda. And the first is that um, at the end of the day, dignity is more important to the human spirit than wealth, that we uh, so often focus on poverty in terms of a dollar a day, two dollars a day, but what we're really talking about is choice. The fact that when you are excluded, when you don't have the freedom to decide where your kid is going to go to school or whether you can get access to health care or even basic services like water, um, it's really hard to plan a life. It's really hard to, to go beyond uh, daily survival. Um, but when you have choice, even if there's uh, only a little bit of income that goes with it, life changes fundamentally. The second is that clearly um, the markets alone are not going to solve big problems of poverty. And in fact, what we see too often, um, and we're certainly seeing it now, is an increasing divide between the rich and the poor. Um, while, while markets do lift many out of poverty, the people who are left behind feel so much further left behind that it creates even more instability in the world. On the other hand, traditional charity, top-down development um, isn't working, hasn't worked, and we needed a better way to find solutions. So Acumen uses um, the concept of patient capital to work between the markets and aid or charity. Uh, as Spence said, we raise charitable money, and then we invest in entrepreneurs, which is why leadership is so important to us. Um, who are looking at the poor not as, as passive recipients of, of change, who want handouts, but as customers, uh, real agents who want to change their own lives. 
we leave the money for a long time, um, which is why we call it patient capital, and we expect at or below market returns. We want to get our money back not so that we profit, but so that we can then invest in other innovations that are changing lives of poor people. And we um, measure everything that we do, both in terms of the financial results as well as the social impact. Because at the end of the day, our vision is that if you use private innovation uh, to solve some of the big problems of poverty, it will lead to understanding who people are, how they make decisions, so that we can better articulate the role of the private sector, the role of government, the role of the nonprofit sector in actually creating solutions. Um, just a couple of examples. One is in water, when um, you look at the world spending $13 billion a year through the UN to try to bring safe drinking water to the poor, you almost want, want to shoot yourself um, for the fact that we have not moved the, me the needle in 20 years. We still have 1.2 billion people who have no access to, to safe drinking water. So when Acumen decided that we wanted to go into the water sector, we thought, well, there have to be lots of opportunities for us to invest. This was back in 2003, 2004. In India, where 400 million people have limited access, 200 million people have pretty much no access to safe drinking water, we found nothing, literally not a single company that we could invest in. Finally, we found a company called Water Health International that was operating in the Philippines, had prototyped it, and was looking interested in taking this prototype to India. Um, it was a startup. We spent $600,000 um, buying equity of this company. and. Um, went through lots of ups and downs with them, hence the need for patient capital again. For the first four or five years, I was sure this company was going to go bankrupt. The model was to go in a decentralized way into rural villages and try to sell water to people who've never, who'd never paid for water before, thought it came from God, um, thought God would decide whether they would get sick from the water, whether it was clean or dirty. Um, dealing with politicians who said, well, we're going to give water to free to people, so why are you coming here? Dealing with the elites who said that it was unethical to make money off the backs of the poor. And yet, Water Health kept pushing through all of this. Long story short, um, today that company has raised an additional $45 million. It operates in 300 villages and has just signed a contract with the government of Andhra Pradesh, which is a 65 million person state in India, to bring um, water not just to the 400,000 people who are buying it now, but to a million over the next two years. Now we have a model, now we have a conversation that it is possible to bring water to low-income people. An industry started, there are five copycat companies now that, have, that are bringing water to 1,000 villages in India, and I think we've captured the imagination of what's possible. Um, we're seeing the same in emergency services, which didn't work before in, in India, starting to see it working now, with toilets in, in, in Kenya, with uh, maternal health care in India, with housing in Pakistan. Um, when I first went to Pakistan in 2002, the mayor of Karachi was talking about how they were going to build a million houses. There was a seven million unit shortfall. And uh, today, not a lot of those houses have been built. But Tazneem Siddiqui, a social entrepreneur, built a, a prototype and got 40,000 people into low-income housing. And that led Javad Aslam, an Acumen Fund fellow, to build a for-profit model based on what he'd learned in three years at working at Saibon. And now, we're negotiating with um, a government agency to really look at what it will take to scale it um, using um, government and private sector again and, and the philanthropic piece that Acumen brings. And so I stand here in a very turbulent time in the world as one of the real optimists, feeling that, that we've never had a time 
where we're so interconnected. We've never had a time where we have the skills, the resources, and the understanding of one another to really bring solutions to scale in ways that when I was your age just weren't conceivable. And so um, it's with real joy that I get to stand here in front of all of you because we believe so much in, at Acumen in leadership and what it means to invest in leaders. In fact, at the end of the day, that's the whole game. That um, we, in, we see our entrepreneurs as leaders, as the visionaries who have the, the courage and the moral imagination to believe that there's a different path and certainly the determination to pursue it. We, we build leaders through our fellows program um, at Acumen where we take 10 fellows every year from around the world and we not only put them in the different companies that we're supporting, but really talk to them about values and what does it mean to be a leader in this really complex world, crossing lines of difference. We believe, believe in leadership in the team that we're building um, with this whole ethos that every member should be and needs to be a leader. And we certainly believe that the world needs a new kind of leader, um, one that really does have the courage to embrace the world's with both arms and expect not a lot of thanks in return, and can really push away the, the trite ideologies that we see too often being flung at one another, um, not only in our political world, but our, our business world and in the nonprofit world, and can really do what Martin Luther King um, implores us to do, which is to have the courage to hold love and power. Um, he says that love uh, without power is anemic and sentimental, and that power without love is reckless and abusive. And so my, my hope for all of you is to um, move forward with not only the vision of who you want to be and how you are going to change the world, but that you have that courage to recognize that we need to build both of those skills inside our heads and certainly inside our hearts. And so I'm going to stop there because I really want to have a conversation with you all. And um, thank you again, and thank Catherine and Wayne for just the incredible work they're doing in seeding each of you and everyone else in the Reynolds Fellows for the world that certainly needs you um, to help heal its broken heart. So thank you for listening to me. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. My name is Joe Tayeg. I'm a second year student um, getting my master's in public health at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, I had a question about um, the impact of storytelling on your development as a leader. I think many of us have read The Blue Sweater. Um, you know, and and I, I was hoping to kind of get the back end of how you were able to derive a narrative from the kind of experiences that you went through, um, starting from the time when you were you know, in your mid-20s into the, the woman you became now. Um, I think in the very short time that we've had with one another, we've talked about our experiences. Several of us have just gotten back from Haiti um, or East Africa as well and have let these experiences wash over us. Um, but there's a point where we're trying to draw out a narrative by which to communicate to the rest of the world what we've seen in a way that's impactful so that these experiences that we carry um, are worth sharing to other people to communicate the message in our work. And I was wondering, you know, how were you able to get to that point when you were able to take your experiences and take it from a moment where you were just bearing witness to something that becomes a story that will change a community? And like, what was, what was that process in, in, in your development as a leader? And also in, maybe you could use the blue sweater as an example, but just in any story that you would tell to communicate where you've been and what you've seen. 
That is such a great question. Um, I clearly think storytelling um, is probably the fundamental skill of leadership. Um, and that um, I, I think for my own personal um, journey, I, I think it comes, one, because I love people so much and I love their stories so much. Um, and I think the older I got and the more uh, confident I got, the more I realized that stories that when I was younger might have felt too silly to tell um, were actually the stories that had the most truth in them. And that if I could start with those stories and connect them, almost helicopter up, then go down, then go up, then go down. If I could be smart enough to understand how policy worked and the big issues, then I would, I would have the credibility, which also gave me confidence to stand in front of smart people. And then I could go back down um, and, and then reveal more of myself and my own truth. Because the more I think that we speak from that really human place, the more people know it. We can feel phonies, all of us know when we see a phony. Um, and I think the world is craving real. Um, and, and also, to care enough um, to really look at how the, your work is impacting people on the ground. And so um, Catherine and I just spent a week in Kenya, and, um, which was this incredible week. And one of the things that was really important to me was to find this woman, Jane. I did a TED Talk on this woman, Jane, who was a ex-prostitute, HIV positive, who had lived in Mathari Valley slum, which is this horrendous slum, just horrendous slum. Open defecation, um, really no toilets. Uh, people live in 10 by 10 shacks and uh, very little electricity and huge violence, crime, prostitution, drugs, the whole deal. And she was moving into one of the houses that Jami Bora, an, a nonprofit community organization, had built that we had funded with $250,000. And 750 houses had been built, but I hadn't seen anybody living in these houses. So I insisted on this trip, not only to go and see the housing development, but to see Jane. Um, and I had a relationship with Jane from our first four hours together. So it's not like, hi, how are you doing? Tell me how this loan has impacted your life. You know, we spent real time. What was so extraordinary was because of the relationship, um, I learned so much in my interaction with her. First just feeling the, my own emotion when to go up, it was like Disney World almost. Like we walked into this uh, housing complex where it was all cinder block houses and there in the middle was a beautiful house with orange and green trim and literally sunflowers growing to the roof line and it was Jane's house of course. And she was so excited and we walked into the house together and she showed me her bedroom, her children's bedroom, the kitchen and then the bathroom. And we were standing in the bathroom together, and she said, you know, when you're a mother in Mathari, um, you, your child is always sick because there's no clean water. And so they um, have diarrhea every day. And the only opportunity that you have to help them is to use the flying toilet method, which is essentially the kids defecate on paper on the floor, and then you, you pop, ball it up or put it in a bag, and you throw it out the door. And she said, it's exhausting. Um, and she said, but now we just sit, we relax, and, and when we're finished, we push the button, and whoosh, it goes away. And I just burst into tears. And I, and I, I realized, in, for 25 years, I've seen like the worst public sanitation on the planet. And I always think, don't ever take it for granted, don't ever take it for granted. But it was, it was only in seeing a woman who'd lived there and now has 
what we do take for granted, that it really helped me understand it, and it really helped me understand patient capital in a different way. So I could use that story to say, what I, what I get now is that we put $250,000 in an organization that no bank would lend to. Um, we've been repaid, so we can do this again. Jane has a mortgage from this organization that no bank would have given to her. We expect her to repay. And, and, and suddenly I thought, this is biblical, that if you look at in ancient times, um, in biblical times, in tribal times, inside the tribe we've always had this notion of capital that will invest in you to go to school, will invest in you if your child's sick. We expect you to pay back for the community. It keeps us close. Outside the tribe, we can make money. We can be the money lenders. Um, and, and, and large profit can keep us distant. And that in an interconnected world where we have to start thinking of ourselves as one tribe, there's really a place for a different asset class that we call patient capital. And so it's having a, an intellectual construct and then seeing that construct um, elucidated by a personal experience that, that also really touches me that then allows that, that, that flexibility and, and a joy factor um, that I think then makes people not see you just as a wonk, nor just see you as a, a do-gooder with a big heart, but says, I can see that, I can feel that, and okay, now maybe I can see a road. And I, I think that's a skill set we need to um, build in, in ourselves.